I'm Ron DeSantis, and I approve this message. Radical socialist Andrew Gillum's done it again. He's gone missing right in the middle of his campaign for Florida's governor. Where could he be? Maybe in Cuba? Maybe in Venezuela? Vote for Ron DeSantis. He's not a communist who will disappear. Probably to Venezuela. Hi, I'm Andrew Gillum, and I'm running for governor of Florida. I suppose I shouldn't be shocked that my opponent, Ron DeSantis, has the temerity to run attack ads against our campaign during a deadly Category 4 hurricane. It should be obvious to everyone, I haven't disappeared, I'm in Tallahassee, to aid in the recovery effort, but my opponent already knows that. He's hoping to fool voters into thinking I'm a socialist, but Floridians know better. They're tired of Ron DeSantis' brand of politics, and they're ready to bring it home on November 6th. I approve of this message. Hi, I'm Ron DeSantis. I wanted to take a moment to respond to my opponent Andrew Gillum's violent, unhinged attack on me. Mayor Gillum, I have a question. I thought the power was out in Tallahassee. How could you have seen my commercials with the power out? Are you sure you aren't somewhere that does have power? Like maybe, I don't know, Caracas? This message was brought to you by the Committee of Floridians Against Socialism and the Venezuelan Socialist Andrew Gillum. Hi, Andrew Gillum again. Just a quick reminder to my opponent that batteries and telephones still exist even in hurricanes, even in Tallahassee, and also I've never been to Caracas. Thank you. There's a storm brewing in Tallahassee, and Andrew Gillum is at the center. With Hurricane Michael bearing down on the panhandle, Gillum wants you to survive on little more than batteries and telephones. That's not how America works, and it's not how Florida works. Florida, let's not baboon our great economy, our tar baby, our progressive job growth. I'm Ron DeSantis, and I approve this message. You know I'm gonna f you up, right? Like, seriously, as soon as this storm's over, I'm gonna find your racist ass. Andrew Gillum says he's gonna fuck Ron DeSantis up because Ron DeSantis' ass is racist. But let's check the facts. Andrew Gillum was nowhere to be seen on the opening night of the NHL last week. Does Mayor Gillum have a problem with hockey? Why does he hate the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning? Or maybe there's something else he doesn't like about the sport. Now whose ass is racist, Andrew Gillum? I'm Ron DeSantis, and as your governor, I'll be a goal man who keeps socialism out of Florida's net. Hi, this is Andrew Gillum. There's a storm here, man. Don't know if you noticed, we're a little busy dealing with this Category 4 hurricane right now. Also, by the way, I don't watch hockey. Pretty sure you don't watch it either if you call the goalie a goal man. I'm Ron DeSantis, and I knew that the goalie isn't a goal man. I just misspoke. Unfortunately, it's typical of my socialist opponent, his allies in the liberal media, and his unhinged, hateful supporters to pick apart every word someone says to try to see the worst in them. We won't let it stop us. Let's continue winning and doing the work of making America great again. We knew exactly what we mean and exactly what we're saying. This ad was paid for by the committee to literally make racist lynch mobs legal again. I think people would be really disappointed to know that you, the first time you tried your, your Ron DeSantis voice, you just assumed it was a Hispanic and you like sounded like Speedy Gonzalez. It was very offensive. 
my my impression was all over the map on that one. I I I apologize to you for you wrote an amazing sketch and I I, I didn't really do a great job, but I'm sure it'll come together. It's just in post. that he's not Latino. He's a white guy. <laughs> I mean, are we sure about that though? We really should look. This I mean, up the fact that sure. you got on and the first line you read was like, "I'm Randy Sandys, orale." <laughs> I was very offended. As a Puerto Rican you were man, shocked. I, I could tell all that. I was shocked. <laughs> I stopped recording. Thank you. And I'm Jewish Dave. This is Bird Road. This is Bird Road. So um, don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Rate, review. Um, we have no advertisements for you, but we will plug some of our other stuff. Dave, what's going on on your, your show, Piecing It Together? This week. Piecing it together, we are doing um, First Man this weekend. We're also doing a Breaking It Apart episode. Communist, on you're a communist, and you're actually probably an Islamist, also. And you're yeah, also- it's true. Uh, I, I'm I'm planning on not having any American flags on the episode, if possible. That I would actually <laughs> prefer it that way. <laughs> I'd love like edge lord people that are like, oh yeah, I'll take the American flag and like wipe my ass with it it's like oh you're fucking crazy dude you're so wild so we back and we um the thing where you were talking about are we gonna be back every episode like kind of like that's what the poem is i mean like it's it's like it's our little it's a little victory it's own little victory every time we get back on the air it's like we're, we're winning day by day uh so I wanted to talk to you about the the whole like you and I have weird disconnections. Yes. Yours was yours was that you as a person who is an activist in Las Vegas who like works on democratic and left-leaning causes actively like you go out and canvas and, and by works i mean you, i i drive gina to things and then i play you, on my sh- phone. you shamble your tube legs <laughs> up and down the <laughs> up and down the streets of Nevada, assuming it's like not that hot out uh, and knock on people's doors and stuff like that. So yes. I was shocked, shocked to hear you say the other day that you just can't imagine. Wait, can't, I don't want to misquote you. So you tell me how you feel about this or you tell me what you really meant, what your intention was. Okay. You said you can't imagine any of the non-voters, people who are like disengaged from voting. If they did vote, you can't imagine them voting for Democrats. Right. Well, okay. That that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I of course plenty will vote for Democrats. I just don't believe the uh, and I, I understand on paper that it, it it's it's been this way uh, forever. That you know if more uh, unregistered people would register and vote, they would be voting Democrat. Um, that that's just the way that the stats say and everything. But I just don't believe that that's true anymore. And in before 2016, I'd have believed you. I, I just don't think it's true anymore. I think, and uh, you know, like a lot of issues that we talk about nowadays, a lot of it could be social media is just you know amplifying things. But I really think we've reached a turning point where things don't make sense anymore, and you can't really look at uh, tried and true you know statistics and things like that. I just think people would be um brainwashed and sold on these you know ridiculous ideas i think that we're in we're we're too far gone as a people i I think things are too messed up i think a lot of people would end up voting against their own best interests yeah i could see that i mean a lot of people did right but my my i guess uh i'm not going to argue with you on the 
on the merit of that. Uh, what I would where I would just push back is more broadly. I think you're being this thing that we talk about sometimes about people being like prisoners of the moment. You're the mm-hmm. moment being 2016. Everybody's has arrested develop. Everybody politically has like arrested development. They haven't seen past November 2016. Everybody's trapped in that moment still on the right and on the left. Sure. And they, they like all these other things that are happening. It's just like one long day. Right, it's right. still November 20, 6, yeah, 2016 yeah. in this country. It's just a long day that with a million news cycles in it. And we're all just sort of experiencing them over and over and over and nothing until there's another, even, you know, even the midterms, I don't know if there'll be a transformative enough event to kind of kickstart the day. It's like groundhog day. We're just stuck in it for a while. Um, Right. We we were talking about that. I think last episode about how it's probably not going to go the way people hope it is, hope it will. Um, But no, I, I think what you're saying is right. But at the same time, I, I used 2016 as like kind of the, the cutoff. But really, I, I think it's worse now than it was in 2016. Um, I, I think things are only getting worse by the day. And like I said, it could just be social media. We live in a really weird time where everything is just amplified by media. Um, but I really do think it's just getting worse and worse. I, I think right now is way worse than 2016, not just 2016 over and over again. Um I, I think that we're going further and further down this really warped rabbit hole. Um, but and I do want to also say, I you know, I, I sound probably pretty fucking defeatist and everything. Um, I do <laughs> think there's still we need people out there getting people registered and getting people voting. And I do think that things will turn around eventually. Um, but, you know, I, I just think shit looks pretty gloomy. That's all. I mean, I can't argue with shit looking gloomy. Uh, and I will say that the Democratic Party is not helping out. Yesterday uh, here in Florida, obviously, it's uh, two days ago was the uh, last day to register to vote. And so yesterday we received a few things in the mail. Um, my house received <laughs> received five glossy mailers on the same exact day with the same copy, but in slightly different designs. Got them right here. Look Look at them really quickly. So, obviously, we have one registered Democrat in this house, myself, and um, in this household. And uh, I'm holding in my hand five of those, like, high-end, thick, cardstock-quality flyers yeah, yeah. that are, like, to send them out is a solid, like, million-dollar or half-million-dollar yeah. operator. I got, I got five on the same day. And they all say the same thing. They're all attacks against the Republican who's running for Congressional District 27, my congressional district, um, former Univision television uh, news anchor, Maria Elvira Salazar. And it's basically Maria Elvira Salazar is driving Trump's agenda in Florida. And it's a Photoshop picture of the two of them in a car. Because, like, I mean, I doubt that she's ever really been in a room with him. Uh, (laughs) Somebody like her, her, her entire campaign running in a in a uh, district where Hillary Clinton won by 25 points is obviously to distance herself from Trump and um, not say anything disparaging about him, but to just like not acknowledge him. So sure. the Democrats strategy, I guess, is to tie her through her party, which is fair. She will absolutely. We talked about this before, how how a generic Republican or just what what passes for a quote unquote moderate Republican will just vote 80 to 90 percent of the time with with Donald Trump. Um, sure. So, yeah, if you vote, if we vote her in, it won't be any different than our current 
congressperson who's Ileana Rosleitnen, a Cuban, uh, uh, a Cuban Republican who says that she doesn't like Donald Trump, but votes with him the majority of the time. Um, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I don't mind this, the strategy. I do think that the Democratic Party, with all of the state Democrat Party, with all of its resources, should be tying Maria Elvira Salazar to uh, Donald Trump. That's fair. And, um, you know, it's not like I'm a vocal, outspoken supporter of Donna Shalala or anything. I actually have a lot of problems with her. But although I have heard her I name a lot more while recording this show than yeah. in the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> mostly in the context of making fun of her. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she looks like she might fall at any moment, which is, I, again, I don't want to go into like the ageism thing because Rick Scott here in Florida has been doing a lot of um, low key ageism calling bill nelson who's far older than him uh confused like every tweet about bill nelson is confused <laughs> bill nelson got the facts wrong again and like it's very i don't know how that's gonna work in a state where everybody's fucking old but right yeah like, everybody everybody who legally votes is an old person who's deathly afraid that their brains are unraveling at any given moment um <laughs> and to like play on that fear in that way i don't know how that's gonna work out but we'll see okay fine right but four, five of these things I'm holding in my hand, Dave, is that the stra- – I mean, this represents what I'm holding in my hand, just knowing what I know about um, direct mail campaigns. Like, this represents like 3 to $4 million all blasted I, on one day. I, I wonder and- this every fucking election cycle. Like, who do those – fucking turn like i i just don't understand how those help they're all like, from the florida democratic party too i could understand if maybe one was from move on and then the other one was from like you know the dnc and then one was from the county or something like that but these are all tagged florida democratic party the florida democratic party pulled the trigger on a campaign on four <laughs> campaigns at the same time this is like this is the shit that i'm talking about about how are you going to get back into power when you're so just organizationally yeah wildly incompetent like it, it just your organization is stupid as shit how are you going to get back into, into power when you're doing stuff like this i mean how many people just grabbed this tuft of of flyers and threw them all in the trash at the same time we used to do this a lot for bands back in the day back when i worked for sony and you were on my street team <laughs> yeah and i was <laughs> give, and I give remember our band our... flyers no one looks at them nobody looked at them back then nobody right. looks at the the ones for politicians and the only way that we would get people to even look at them was when we were when we would hand people stuff and say, "Here, you throw this out," and right. they would and they would actually appreciate the humor, and they'd yeah. say, "Oh, well, what is this? Modest Mouse is coming next month." Eh, still not interested. But maybe the, you know, maybe, these, like, maybe the Democrats need to uh, hire us. That way, we can do that same. Maybe they need strategy. to hire Modest Mouse. A whole bunch of light beer. How many Democratic events do you think uh, feature Modest Mouse music on a percentage basis? Oh, probably I'd say a like lot. 30 actually, to 40. yeah, I can picture Float On playing at almost every single one. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention about what I got in the mail yesterday, obviously, is in a lot of Floridians and um, probably I don't know when you guys are going to get your ballots and whatnot, but uh, everybody's going to get their sample ballots pretty soon or mm. their their mail in ballots. If you're in Florida, you know what? I'm going to just venture a guess. And I'm also going to say if you're in Nevada or in any purple state again, which is the target of this show, voters in purple states uh, don't mail in your ballot. There's been research and studies and and surveys done recently that show that if you specifically if you imagine this if you have a if, if you happen to be black i don't know how they can tell that from your ballot but uh they find a way to do it um 
or you have a Hispanic surname, it's far more likely that your ballot, your mail-in ballot will not be counted. Um, So don't mail in your ballots. Go do it in person. Uh, If you're within the sound of my voice here in Florida, if you hear me in, um, in, uh, fuck it, in Nevada, any purple state, like I said, don't, don't mail in your ballot. That's how they get you. I like to go vote anyway because then I get to pick the restaurant. So that, that's that's my little thing. So wait, do you think that that there's voting in restaurants? <laughs> well, the, the, I get to vote very close. So like, to some do you of my think that you're constantly so. voting every time you go eat? <laughs> that's not voting. That's just choosing a place that you like to eat. I vote for the chicken nachos. Please hold the olives. I hate olives. <laughs> This is democracy in action. We have an interview coming up that takes up most of the uh, most of the allotted time for this show, which you chose not to be a part of. That's fine. We had a couple of things that we wanted to talk about before we get to our interview, Dave. But I saw that you had put something down on the um, on the show notes. Yeah, I wanted to ask your opinion on this because honestly, I, it's one of those issues where I'm I'm really not sure which side to fall on on this. And and that's uh, Las Vegas City Council. Uh, it seems like they're going to vote to ban uh, short-term rentals, uh, basically killing Airbnb and things like that here in Las Vegas. And I don't know. It's like both sides of this seem I, – I don't know. It's, it seems like not good either way. I don't know. Do you, do you have any opinion on this? What do they do out there? I mean – there's a, a strong in certain neighborhoods there's a strong push against airbnb and short-term rentals yeah. and our neighborhoods and our um, our layout of our urban area in miami-dade county is way more like balkanized than yours is where it, you guys really just have like two municipalities you have clark county and you have the city of las vegas and that's right it. and henderson i guess you can count henderson um nobody does but here there's a thousand little cloisters of neighborhoods that decided a few years ago or a few decades ago that they wanted to be their own municipality and they built their own shitty little city hall and sure. like their own shitty little police force and, and, and whatever. Um, like half of them are failing or in like financial distress and have like the other half are wildly mismanaged, but just have such a huge tax base that it doesn't matter. Anyway, the, the point is um, it's dealt with on like a very micro level here. Where the Las Vegas City Council making a decision is a big deal because that affects a million people. Or no, how many people live in in Vegas City? Like in the city of Vegas, it's like maybe a few hundred thousand, right? Like three or four hundred thousand. And then most people like you technically live in Clark County. You're not in the city of Las Vegas. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the exact number, but yeah, it's a lot of people, though. Right. So it's a lot of people. And then usually the county has to follow what the city does because that's the way that it is there. The city has the gravity and has the population and then the county sort of has to deal with it. Okay. But on a, on a merit based issue, like as, as an issue, uh, I don't know what the right, you know, I don't know what the, what the, what the doctrine for, um, you know, a leftist position on this would be. I mean, obviously I, I want to, uh, my, my politics and my position on these things are that anything that can, uh, democratize or or free workers a little bit more is good so i can see that being a a thing but i'm also sort of against the concept of of rent and um against like i'll tell you what my what issue what doesn't weigh in on me is the public nuisance issue i don't give a fuck about that because right right and that's a big part of why they're trying to ban it 
Yeah, there's already laws on the books for people acting like assholes and partying and going insane until four in yeah. the morning in, in residential neighborhoods. And if you live in a place where there are no laws like that, like in a nightclub district, which we have in Miami, we have nightclub districts where there's areas where, you know, in downtown and on South Beach where it's like, why would you want to live there? There's no reason to live there. Everybody's partying until five in the morning every night. And if you move there and complain about it, guess what? You're the asshole. So, right, right. um, it's complicated and it's like an issue by issue basis. I, I don't think that 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 kind of enterprise and what you do with your own possessions should be infringed in any way, which is kind of a decidedly anti-leftist. I, I think it's pretty obvious that the hotels have a big, you know, to do with this as well as they, they want. <clears throat> oh, yeah, of course. Themselves. Caveat this with the. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's Vegas. But um, but yeah, it's like I, as far as like just from like a personal point of view, it does seem like a lot of. A lot of like the progressives and stuff are, uh, you know, heavily against. Uh, well, they're they're for this being allowed. They're they're against it being banned. Um, you know, a lot of them are you know poorer and and they right. want to find any way to you know get extra income or find places to live. And Airbnbs are a little of both of that. From depending on you know where exactly they're at. Um, so it does I guess you have like to do a little bit of, of as, as a as a leftist or as a um as a as a socialist even you have to do a little bit of uh backbending to to get to a point where like you're anti rent seeking right which is that con- the like this just this economic condition of rent seeking and but but on this micro scale it's not like you're landlording really it's not like you're right. um you know just laying back and 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 collecting money for like the core problem with with rent seeking is that it's people who are just getting money for other people living which is right right that that shouldn't be labor that's not labor like it's that's not work and um Airbnb is like that too but Airbnb is also a, a thing that kind of at the same time re- releases the te- the the pressure on some of the screws of capitalism so it's it's kind of a complicated thing for me. I guess it's it's just I don't have a problem with it. If a neighbor of mine was doing that and it was degrading the quality of the neighborhood, I already know that there are law enforcement. Um, there are law enforcement and also judicial remedies at, at, at you know we live in a we live in a society, Dave. Dave, it's yes, a society we that a we society. live in. We do live in a society. So, I mean, like you can call the cops, you can fucking, you know, take the person to court. Um, and it's just, I read as part of this so... that if you, uh, oh, I, I read as part of this that if you call the cops one time, uh, Airbnb uh, suspends your license to be able to use it, which is uh, pretty that's interesting. That's interesting. I wonder if that's the case now. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. What do you, are, have you ever thought about Airbnb in your place? Oh no, no, not at all. Wait, 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 wait with uh, Har- with Harvey and Sadie and Trudy and Lily, I don't think anybody would want to oh, live yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a. Uh, I've thought about yeah. I've thought about Airbnb being our place for Art Basel because you could literally where we live, we could art we could make like no kidding like ten grand in yeah. during Art Basel, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I mean it's it's tempting, but I also I just hate people. Um, exactly, I don't want them yeah. around. I don't want them near my house or like rubbing their grody asses in my couch. I, I fully. I don't even them. like you that much. Let's go to the interview. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
here in Miami, we have this uh, rickety Nixon era power plant about 20 miles south to us uh, called Turkey Point. It pumps out phosphorus and ammonia and basically contaminates our bay and aquifers and uh, places where we store our fresh water. Up north, we have Lake Okeechobee, which is at this point basically a, a sea of sugar processing chemical runoff that, that flows south and regularly creates these toxic algae blooms. To our east, we have hurricanes that are pretty much constantly taking aim at us from summer to fall. And to our west, we've got a plague of red tide killing tons and tons of sea life. So we're good. We're pretty good here in Miami. Um, we're joined today by the Miami Herald's Alex Harris, who reports on climate change. But uh, since there hasn't really been any climate change news, I figured we could just like talk about whether you're team Venom or team Star is Born. I don't know. Maybe, you know, find something more interesting to talk about. Yeah, I mean, there's really there's nothing going on. Not much happening. No, I think uh, I'll spend my whole week just watching Venom over and over again, you know, instead of uh, slogging through a couple feet of water that are on my feet on my street. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously that's not true. We are having an enormous amount of um, climate change news. And for somebody like you, that must be very interesting since it is one of the chronically most chronically underreported and undercovered relative to how important it is topics that we have in uh, in, in media cycles. You had a piece yesterday on a report that warned of um, pretty catastrophic economic effects of rising sea tides in South Florida. But what made this different is that this report didn't come from the UN, didn't come from the Union of Concerned Scientists or any of the other sort of uh, usual suspects, but from a wealth fund manager, Mark Singer, who lives right here in my, in my neighborhood, uh, Coral Gables, manages about $1.5 billion in assets. What did that report say? He had a pretty surprising statement. He told me he's telling his clients that they should keep about 50% of their assets out of South Florida because of how vulnerable we are to sea level rise and flooding and hurricanes, um, which is pretty crazy for an economy that runs entirely on uh, tourism and real estate. Yeah, just lest anybody forget, Miami is a tourism and real estate place. We don't have a whole lot of other you know, industry happening down here. Obviously, we have big sugar um, a little further north in the state. But, uh, you know, that that is our bread and butter. He he invoked this phrase um, when talking about the the viability of investment. And he, he talked about the stigma of sea rise. Have you seen any quote unquote stigma of sea rise in, in your coverage? I mean, is there an increased awareness? Is, is is that something that people are thinking about and talking about more beyond just the this this report we're talking about. Right. Well, that's the million dollar question is, is there actually a stigma of sea rise? And you kind of see it when I write a lot of stories about this, obviously, and people in the comments will say, oh, I told you Miami was going to sink or, oh, I'm, I live in Apopka in North Florida. I would never buy property in South Florida because of sea level rise. Um, and you hear that colloquially, but what everyone is trying to hunt down is that actual market price. Like our houses that are going to be flooded regularly in 20 years selling for less. Because do people know that? Or, or is this something the realtors are telling them? Answer, no. Is this something that is factored into prices? Answer, probably no. Is this something that should? Yes. Um, there have been a couple studies I've written about two of them that I can think of that are the strongest ones that have said that they can see a small difference in prices based on elevation. Um, one of them is a Harvard study and one of them is a University of Colorado study. And um, they both kind of talk about how the signal is there, but it's really, really faint. So um, one of the studies was used as the basis for a tool called Flood IQ, where you can type in your address and it'll show you, you know, your property's worth a half a million dollars. Um, but if it wasn't 
a block from the coast, it would be worth $600,000 because of that little small growth that could have happened um, if it weren't exposed to so much flooding. And that's something the industry has really, really, really fervently pushed back on. I had a, a realtor call it fake news. Um, and it's something they really, <laughs> they say isn't happening. They say that they don't notice it. Um, and they, I mean, what they usually fall back on is the, is the fact that home prices and prices of buildings and any sort of real estate down here is just soaring. Um, so with that much growth, who's talking about sea rise? What do you mean? That's not going to happen. I, I made however many millions of dollars selling this luxury condo in Coral Gables. Um, what do you mean that there could be a change in prices from sea rise? It's just something that I hear people talk about, but it's hard to find it in the market right now. It's something that you don't really see, which is why Mark and his uh, new rule about investment is so interesting because he's really just coming out there and saying it. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you drill down on that, it seems like there's two. Um, there's like you could almost separate investors into sort of two classes. There's the, you know, what we see here in Miami is this big influx of sort of foreign money and foreign investors who are just kind of looking for a home for their money. Like this, to those folks, it doesn't seem like this is that big of an issue. But for people who are trying to plant their flags and open up businesses or build new developments that actually require human beings to like not have gills they 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 are taking it into consideration is is that the do you see a kind of a demarcation there or a segmenting between the two different kind of people who who might be an audience for the singer report absolutely um like even some of the wealth managers and portfolio and investment people that i spoke to for the story um marked out that they, they called a difference between their international and their domestic clients Internationally, they said clients are just really excited about moving their money, usually from South America, a couple from Europe, uh, into a country where they're, you know, they can make a ton of cash. No one really follows up on where that cash goes. Um, obviously, as you probably talk about pretty regularly on this show, there's a ton of mon money laundering down here, which really undergirds our international real estate market. Um, and those people are in and they're out. They're investing. Uh, they're short term. It's like real estate developers. They're going to build the building and they basically are hands off in less than five years. Um, so they don't care. But people who you know own a house, those are the people that are the most worried because a house is basically for most people. Um, your entire wealth. It is your generational wealth. It is what you pass on to your kids. It's what you retire on. It is your your whole family's wealth right there. And if you lose value on that house, unlike the people who are buying 25 luxury condos and not even bothering to fill them with renters because it doesn't matter money-wise, um, if you lose the value of that house, that is a drastic punch in the gut to you and your family's financial health. So yeah, the people who care about Miami, live in Miami, want to be a part of this culture down here, they're the ones who are starting to get worried and stressed out about it. People who are just coming in and out, fly by night, investors, they don't. Yeah, so much of the middle class and the working class, a lot of their, if they're able to accrue wealth, you know, it's, as you say, wrapped up in um, the equity that they have in their home. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned that this report is different, right? So uh, I'm wondering if you think that because of the the provenance of this information where it's usually different enviro groups trying to talk to people about this this issue if maybe the suburban or or middle class uh audience that might not might not normally give it as much credence if, if you think that um those folks who might be a little more skeptical of climate change if, if this might be a bit more of an eye-opener as opposed to 
you know, the, the UN report, which we'll get into in a minute. Sure. And I mean, for me, one of the easiest metrics to measure how people care about or pay attention to something that I write about is, you know, the amount of attention it gets online, the amount of people who view it, the amount of people who share it, whatever. And I will tell you that the two things people care the most about when you write about climate change are their own health, you know, Zika, other terrible diseases spreading by mosquito or public health issues, and real estate. Real estate comes out far and ahead. And you know what? At a certain point, the numbers are going to show that there's a change happening um, in a way that, you know, oh, I don't care about this invasive um species now that now is in my yard, even though it was supposed to be in the Caribbean. I don't care that the alligators are dying. I don't care that the coral reefs are bleaching. I'm not an outdoorsy person. But I sure as shit care if my home has lost 30% of its value in the next two years. This is the kind of stuff that everybody cares about because it affects everybody in the wallet, in the pocketbook. This is something that really, really, really means a lot to a lot of people. And the even these giant insurance and reinsurance companies that like are puppet strings to a lot of what holds up our economy, um, they're the ones who started paying attention to, and it's not because they love polar bears. It's because that it affects their bottom line and their investments are less sound down here. And that's something they're starting to pay attention to. So yeah, I think it is happening. It's just happening slowly um, in a numbers focused way. And eventually those numbers are going to tip and I think we're going to see a really big change, but no one knows when that's yeah, going to be yet. There, there has to be yeah, there has to be an actuarial table out there internally at, you know, Covenant or any of these enormous um, homeowner home insurance companies where some, somebody, some wonk is going to walk down a hallway one day and say, this doesn't make sense for us anymore. Mm-hmm. We can't keep covering this. Oh, I was going to say, that's the one thing we're watching for, right, is when the 30-year mortgages stop happening down here. That's the ticker um, is when that's when the wonk walks down and says, yeah, this doesn't work. Never, and the company says, okay, great, we won't do that anymore. That's when... I think that the, everyone talks about being the big signal for change down here. More for us than probably anywhere else in the country right now. I think the, the problem is really your colleague, uh, Sarah Blasky, had a story today about dry day flooding in Opelaka, which is a, a smaller local, wildly corrupt city here in Miami. Um, <laughs> even by Miami-Dade standards, it's insanely corrupt. But um, in this in this smaller, smaller part of, of the county, it uh, creates it ends up creating kind of like these, this dry day flooding ends up creating moats of sewage around people's house, which is just a great way to live. And um, of course, today is King Tide Day. So why don't you tell all of our listeners, what is King Tide? I guess we call it King Tide Day, but it's really more of like a week, right? Yeah. So King Tide is kind of slang for the highest high tides of the year. Um, And they happen a couple of times everywhere from September to November. Generally, they're the strongest in October. And what they are is when the moon and the sun and everything are perfectly aligned. And so our tides are, you know, at their absolute peak. Um, And they call them king tides because it's, you know, the king of all tides. But generally, there's one uh, week-long session that's higher than the rest of them. And for us, that's this week, October 8th and 9th, are the two highest days of the entire season. So therefore, we're kind of looking to see today at like 9.30 a.m. was the worst flooding of the entire year in South Florida. Um, And last year and years before, we've seen four feet of flooding. We've seen roads closed, tourists forced to carry their suitcases above their heads as they dash through South Beach. Um, You know, cars get stalled with flooding saltwater flooding in their engines. We've seen all kinds of crazy stuff happen. And this year we were really worried about it because we also have um, a wonderful algae bloom off the east coast of Florida called red tide that can make people and pets and babies sick. Um, And we were really worried that was going to send this toxic sludge of water deep inland into our cities. Um, Unfortunately, we did not see that. For some reason, this was a really low tide year. Um, We saw maybe a foot less of water 
come in this year than we did last year. And um, the city has done a lot of engineering. Cities have done a lot of engineering to kind of keep that water at bay in the last year. And I, I think that plus, you know, a little reprieve from nature has given us a pretty okay year in terms of king tides. There were no complaints in Miami or Miami Beach related to it, which is pretty crazy for two cities full of people who love to complain. I mean, do you chalk any, do you see the the former Miami Miami Beach mayor, Phil Levine, who worked a lot on, on um, some remediation efforts and tide walls and things like that? Do you see that class of folks sort of coming out and saying, like, our strategy, our remediation tactics are working? Or is it, like you say, more just a matter of... Um, just like a lot of a lot of weather as opposed to climate, just luck, like circumstantial luck. It seems like this year was some luck. I mean, last year also on the worst tidal day, it poured all day long, which if the ground is already full of water and there's no space for it to drain, a couple extra inches of a South Florida storm is not going to help you. Um, I haven't heard anyone get up on a chair and crow that they have solved sea rise yet. Um, but I, <laughs> I think this is something that I talked to uh, the city of Miami head of resiliency and public works today. And he called um, today a, a great success in terms of, you know, identifying weaknesses and, and plugging some of those holes. I don't think anyone is dumb enough to get up there and say like, we did it mission accomplished um, yeah. because they know that, you know, one hurricane coming at us at the um, next round of, of King tides in November could, uh, could undo all of this. It could, you know, show that we're weaker than we think we are. And they're only going to get worse in the future, right? These, King tides are are strongly tied to sea level rise. So as the sea rises, we're going to see higher and higher king tides or more frequent tides that we would consider king tides now. So this is all just kind of a dry run for the future, pretty much. So it's funny you say that uh, sea level rise because just that phrase, I've noticed in paying, if you pay, pay pretty close attention to what's happening in the county and in the region, you'll notice that, and I wonder if you've noticed this too, that's really the preferred phrase. What you don't when, when you're going to city council meetings, commissioners, uh, uh, county commission meetings, um, a lot of the working groups they use that phrase. But what the, the phrase that they steer clear of is climate change. And I'm wondering if that's something that's codified. I went to high school in North Carolina. Um, we missed almost half of our first month of school when I was a senior because of a hurricane that changed the coastline. And after that, there was laws put in place that were basically omerta. You couldn't talk about climate change in any kind of projections that might affect uh, you know, real estate values and like shove your head in the ground and just kind of pretend it's not there. Yep. Uh, I'm wondering if that's a conscious thing that's happening in Miami. Are people, are legislators, leaders specifically being, um, whether it's political or, or, or otherwise, being discouraged to not talk about climate change, but more about the symptom or the symptoms like uh, sea level rise. Well, we know, as has been reported, and I recently heard reiterated to me when talking to a, a former um, uh, fundraiser yesterday uh, that a couple of years, uh, Rick Scott's can Governor Rick Scott of Florida really does not like the word climate change. Um, he banned it, and he also um, asked that his employees in all state documents refer to you know, sea level rise is nuisance flooding. Um, so yes, we know that that exists at the head of the dragon here. Um, but I mean, I think locally, it's something that that doesn't get talked about enough. You know, climate change as a whole is something that I mean, there's different ways to address it, right? Sea level rise is a more immediate problem. It's right. You called it a symptom. You're totally right. It's the symptom that actually affects us down here more than anything else. Heat is probably our second. And we're kind of fine on that because we've got some pretty good breezes. That's not going to be a serious problem for a couple more decades. But sea level rise is a problem right now. And that's something that 
um, people really want to hear their elected leaders say, oh, yes, we're worried about sea level rise. And luckily, that counts as shorthand for caring about climate change. I think that that gets transferred over a lot of people who hear my their governor or their their commissioner, whoever talk about sea level rise. They think, OK, right, that's you are thinking about climate change. You're thinking ahead. Um but really, in terms of the way South Florida deals with climate change, the way to deal with climate change is to cut emissions. And that's not something we see down here. Uh, there's no concerted effort from any municipality that I know of um, to you know, get to total renewable. You've got South Miami with Mayor Phil Stoddard, who you know did some cool things with putting solar on new properties. But there's really no one out here who's banging the drum saying, we need to shut off carbon emissions now. Like, that's something that you don't really hear. And I know it's something that um, the city of Miami really hasn't taken a big stance on either. Um, even though they have a ton of people in the resiliency department and they have a ton of money coming eventually for sea level rise improvements. And it's something that you're right. There's definitely a line to be drawn there and people here will talk your ear off about sea level rise. And that's kind of an accepted conversational topic. But as for climate change, that's something that they kind of assume that they have checked that box once they talk about sea level rise. Yeah, we wouldn't be a good leftist podcast if we didn't bring up the concept of class and and all of this. Mm -hmm. And in a county where forty five percent of the county is is in poverty, um, a lot of the refrain that you hear when you talk to people is, "Oh, well, there's just too much money here. It'll get fixed. It'll solve itself." <laughs> but I think a lot of times people forget that that money has wheels. Money can go wherever it needs to, and the the people those who are you know. Uh, in the lower class or the working class don't necessarily have that mobility. Is there a plan or is there any kind of zero day scenario built in anywhere, le any level of government that talks about how on a, you know, county, state, federal level, we would be able to help out. I mean, God, like a, a million and a half people who mm -hmm. presumably in, in a, in a bad climate event would 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 be stuck would be you know either without water without resources i mean is there anything out there that that addresses that short answer no um and the fun part about the sentence you said earlier about like oh we have enough cool. money to solve that yeah no that's the answer i mean i'll go into more but <laughs> just just not not pulling punches here no there's really no plan for that but when like you said earlier um oh we've got enough money to solve that funny enough you never hear that sentence from anyone who's anything less than high income um, I only hear that from investors and businessmen who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not worried about stopping investing here because I'm fine and, and we've got plenty of money and we can fix things. So, yeah, the low income uh, population in Miami-Dade, of which there is a very large percentage of the county, um, doesn't really have a lot of options. So the – I mean as we see every time there's a hurricane, the people who are hurt the most are the low income and usually minority populations here. They don't have extra money to afford gas, to move, to leave to stock up on food if they're on food stamps. I mean, as we saw last year in Irma, sometimes the grocery stores, when they get power back on, won't get the food stamp machines working for a couple more days, um, leaving people out of life-saving um, supply getting. Uh, and generally, it's something that you hear a lot when you talk to county and city planners. They talk about the equity lens. That's a very common rephrase. And what they mean is, what about poor people? Um, and the answers are really not there. Um, there's no... It's something people kind of keep in the corner of their mind occasionally. The resilience people will bring it up. Um, and, and some of the neighborhoods that, for instance, the city of Miami is targeting Shorecrest for their first 
big overhaul of how they're going to make a, a neighborhood resilience, uh, resilient to sea rise. And Shorecrest is um, a mixed income population that's got some homeowners, mostly low income renters. And I, and I talked to a gentleman who lives there pretty regularly, and he is very concerned that the city is not doing enough for renters and not doing enough for uh, low income minority communities like his in the face of all of this. And you'll see some efforts. Um, the city of Miami is also working to Resilient, resiliently redesign some parks, including um, a Ho- Jose Marti Park in Little Havana, which is, um, as Commissioner Eileen Higgins pointed out to me this morning when we were talking about King Tide out there, is just as vulnerable as Miami Beach, but, you know, they don't have as loud of a voice. Um, when you talk about how much money is at stake, when you talk about how many people's lives are at stake, talk about the economic engines at stake, these communities just aren't the ones that rise to the top of the list. They're just as important. The people's lives matter just as much, but it's not something that there are concrete plans out there for yet. No. Yeah. And it's funny because it's not so simple. One of the things I think people don't understand about South Florida as a region, it's not so simple as looking at the coastline because there are far inland areas like Sweetwater that are uh, uh, very much at risk um, for rising rising tides, not off of the coast, but Mm -hmm. from underneath our own feet. Obviously, uh, for those who live here, they know that we, um, you know, we, we have our own drinking water because of a, you know, porous limestone underneath our feet. And that's being encroached on too by this like brackish seawater. So mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of very unique and special <laughs> uh, problems here. Yes. Meanwhile, while we deal with all these South Florida issues, the United Nations um, is taking more of a 10,000 foot view. Over the weekend, they, they published this report that's made a huge, huge impression. And like I said, at the top, at the top of this interview, actually, managed to grab some of the media um, cycle, the the news cycle, even just momentarily. So from the New York Times, uh, the lead is a landmark report from the, the United Nations Scientific Panel on Climate Change paints a far more dire picture of the immediate consequences of climate change than previously thought and says that avoiding the damage requires transforming the world economy at a speed and scale that has, quote, no documented historic precedent. And this is a, a report that was issued by the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Those are some of the key takeaways, but I'm wondering if from your perspective, Alex, if there's anything that um, that caught your attention in the report. Right. So, I mean, the thing is about these reports that come out every five years, um, there's never any new science in them. They are a compendium of the, of six, for this one exa- uh, in particular, 6,000 different scientific references. And it's put together by hundreds of scientists from like dozens of company, or countries around the world. Um, so they basically just tell us what we already know and they cross-reference with each other. And what they told us is we have a lot of fucking work to do if we want to um, stop some of the most dramatic and terrible changes that we've ever seen in our climate. Um, so we talk a lot about 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is a, a goal um, set that if we can reach that, we can kind of stave off the worst effects of climate change. So this whole report was what is it going to take to get us to that 1.5, which is like a magic number where, yes, we're still going to see um, a couple feet of sea rise, especially, you know, down here in Miami um, and places like Manhattan. But the worst of it's fine. We're not going to have global droughts and famines and we're not going to lose entire island nations. Well, we are, but not a ton of them, just a couple of them. Um, so that magic. Just Vanuatu and a few others. Just, you know, people, yeah. with the, just a couple thousand people's <laughs> homes and livelihoods and entire civilizations are gone but yes exactly (laughs) um but that's you know less that that's this is the rosy clear-eyed scenario this is we can do this we're really excited about this this is totally achievable kind of paper but what we really when you see it um to get to that 1.5 magic number well to give it some context here 
since the Industrial Revolution, we've already warmed a full degree Celsius. And a half of that has happened in the last 30 years since 1988. So in the last 30 years, we, re, we um, have gone up half a degree Celsius, and that's using more and more coal and more carbon-heavy energy production. So we have 80 years to go up less than half a degree. Um, if we, we, that's what we have to do. And that is really, really, really drastic. We have to use less energy. We have to cut coal by one third. We have to start burrowing carbon deep into our, you know, um, the ground and storing it in trees and, and coming up with all this carbon capture technology. It would be a monumental effort. And I think they called it something unlike the, uh, in scale in scope and scale of something the world has never seen in this report. And it's, um, I talked to uh, Professor Ben Kurtman at the University of Miami today when I was talking about this report. He um, helped them put together the last IPCC report in 2012, and he, he basically said it was possible to get to geophysically possible that we could do this, um, but not really <laughs> likely. So what we're probably yeah. looking at is more like two degrees, which he still said would be catastrophic for Caribbean islands and um, would lead to a lot of this stuff too. But basically the underscore of this report is Climate change is a huge problem. It's really happening. It's on its way right now. And unless we do something right now, like the whole world gets together and globally gets its shit together, um, we're going to see some really scary things happen before we even get to 2040. It's a rosy picture. Um, you can almost, uh, what I was going to say was you can sort of feel every time a report comes out like this and, and they manage to, like I said before, capture a, a news cycle or two and actually get the attention of people Jeff Goodell, who's a um, uh, editor at Rolling Stone and wrote a great book that you might have read, probably, I would assume that you might, you probably mm -hmm. read, um, called The Water Will Rise. Uh, he had this great explanation that, that, that made a lot of sense to me, at least when I read that book. And it was that we are, as a species, we're great at dealing with threats immediately in front of us, like a saber-toothed tiger mm -hmm. in front of me. I can deal with that. I'll figure out a way to deal with that. Long-term things like this, we're terrible at dealing with them. Even when we fully understand them, it, it, it's like we're evolutionarily blind to this kind of stuff. I'm wondering from your perspective, what's it like trying to report on climate change when the media cycles kind of get dominated by things, you know, Supreme Court, Kavanaugh, children in cages, these sort of emergent things, uh, you know, refugee crises and, and stuff like that, trying to get people to notice or care. I mean, what is that like? It's pretty hard. Um, I mean, and just like what you said there, it, it is it's hard to look someone in the face and say, yes, 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 I know that there are children in cages. Yes, 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 I know that gun violence is killing children near school. But you should really stop eating beef and you should put solar panels on your house. Just yeah. the, the scale of it is so incomprehensible to people. And especially because the kind of the big things that could stop climate change are really not at the individual level. You can do great stuff. Um, the best thing you can do is vote. Um, but, you know, you could do individual actions, you could stop single-use plastics, you can recycle, you can do a lot of things. Um, but the real significant change comes at a political level. And when you look at a person and you tell them, like, okay, this huge thing, this train is barreling toward um, your house and it's going to just blow it off its foundation and shatter it and everyone in it is going down. Um, the only way you can stop it is by calling your congressman every day um, and hoping that he feels like it's important enough to – um, put together a bill that does some complicated sciencey policy thing. That's not really a sexy, winning, simple message, especially if there's so many other yeah. things happening in that household. They can't put food on the table. They've got sick relatives. Um, taking that 
taking some of that attention feels like a crime sometimes, but it's not because this is a really important issue. And the nice thing about this is this is something we can actually solve. This is solvable. This is, we see clearly enough into the future that we can do something about it. Unlike a lot of these other problems happening right now, they're really, sometimes they're just intractable and they're just kind of here and they suck. Um, But the nice thing you can say is, hey, this is totally solvable. In fact, we can create a better world for everyone if we do this stuff. Like we're not going to hurt anyone except for, you know, investments in fossil fuel companies and other parts of the world. But that's fine. That, that's a fine loss. We're good with that one. Um, but really, I mean, it's, it's all positive stuff and it, it's stuff that benefits everyone. Um, but it's really hard to steal the oxygen in the room sometimes when there's such horrible things happening. So part of trying to get that attention, though, I will give credit where it's due to the um, Miami Herald along with the, the Sun Sentinel and the Palm Beach Post over the summer. They started this joint project or joint venture. I'm not sure exactly how they're describing it, but mm-hmm. um, it's called The Invading Sea. And I'm sure that you're a big part of that. And um, I wanted to ask you to talk about that project. It's 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 a joint joint venture between the, the editorial boards. And obviously, you're not on the editorial board. You're distinctly on the other side of the house <laughs> as, a, as a journalist. Um, but I want to ask you what you can tell us about that project and the work that you guys are doing with that. And also, I wanted to ask if it's sort of weird to be a climate reporter in this moment where just like five or 10 years ago, a lot of the stuff that you and I are talking about, just you acknowledging the, the the empirical evidence that climate change exists would have had you branded as, you know, somebody who's who's biased. An or, activist. You know, somebody – exactly, an activist mm-hmm. journalist. Whereas now we've sort of come to accept that. I think that the discourse has moved to a point where, uh, you know, somebody – a reporter for the Miami Herald can, can talk openly about the existence of climate change without the worry of, of being branded an activist. Um, so talk about, if you can, what the invading sea reader listeners, you can check it out at the invading They sort of, it's a compendium of a lot of articles dealing with climate change and the issue at large, but talk about what that is and the strategy behind it and, um, you know, your role. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for the plug. Um, the invading seas is a really cool project that the Palm beach post, the Broward County sun Sentinel and the Miami Herald have all worked together to, um, have their editorial boards, form opinions and editorial opinions that they all share um, about sea level rise and the and climate change and the dangers that we face. And um, they allow op-eds from anybody. So if any of your readers feel, or listeners, sorry, feel like they um, have anything they want to <laughs> say or they're an expert who has some advice on this or knowledge on it, we're always taking that kind of stuff. Um, but they, it's a compendium, as you said, of all this kind of information. So it talks about it from a financial angle, like the Mark Singer thing. It talks about it from um, a scientific angle, like this UN um, report that just came out. But it also talks about it um, from people. You, you know, you hear from activists, you hear from neighbors who say, yes, I sold my house and I moved, to Fort, I moved from Fort Lauderdale to Asheville, North Carolina, because I was worried about the value of my home. My house floods every day. The garbage uh, truck can't pick it up. You really get a good mix of all of these issues. And one of the nice things about this um, editorial collaboration here is in the news business, you kind of do this thing where you write a story on a topic and that's, then you're good for a while. (laughs) You don't get to come back to it every single week. Um, But if you take op-eds from all these experts, they all hit the same points over and over and over again. So you really get the repetition that you need to really hammer in that this is an important topic and this is something we should be paying more attention to. Um, And I'm actually completely separate from it. Um, We, they came up with this plan 
to put this project together. And they do have reporting assistance from uh, WLRN, which is our local NPR affiliate, that one of their reporters, the environmental reporter, Kate Stein, does a lot of wonderful work with them. Um, but separately, the Miami Herald decided around December of last year that they needed a climate change reporter. Um, so that's where I come in. And um, we're really trying to look at it from the um, the people-centered version, right? Like, how does this affect you personally? Hyper-local, what is happening in this world and how does that personally affect you? Is it your flood insurance going up? Are you having trouble trying to elevate your home? Um, are you getting your car stalled out every time there's a flood? That kind of stuff. Um, and it's really just been a mission to try to repeat the same things over and over to people. This is happening. This is real. And this is something you should care about too, which I feel like is every other thing journalists ever write about, right? Affordable housing. This is real. This is something you should care about. Here's what you can do about it. And the one step from journalism to activism is deciding that here's the right thing to do about it. And here's the only thing you can do about it. Um, and I think as long as you stay on the journalism side, which is here's the facts, which is this is absolutely happening, which you're right. Ten years ago, it's something that every article would have um, one line from a scientist saying, yep, 100,000 yeah, of us caveat. all think this is real. Yeah. yeah. But one out of the the one out of the 99% of the scientists mm -hmm. that, that was like so busy being quoted as this, as the single dissenting voice. <laughs> exactly. <for years. laughs> the Heartland foundation saying, no, 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 this is all, it's all bullshit. Um, but you're right. And that was something that we felt, you know, incorrectly because journalism as a whole, we didn't really understand the science. Um, and now we do. And I think thanks to a really good, um, campaign from scientists and activists also to say, no, 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 there's no two sides on this. There's one side on this. And this is where you need to, this is where objectivity is getting in the way of the truth. Um, and I think the Herald has been for years, we've, we've wrote about climate change and sea level rise. It's real without quoting anyone like that. Like we've had a pretty good dedication to that over the decades. Um, but it's not something we, we wrote about with the frequency we're writing about it now. And that's something um, I feel really good about our decision to do that. And I hear a lot of feedback from regular people in communities that I walk through and talk to people from. They're like, oh, I'm so glad you're writing about this. I'm so glad I know um, what my government is doing to protect me and what I can tell them I want more of or less of or how I feel about this particular solution. And what you find when you write about this is that everybody has different ideas for solutions, but a lot of people have really cool ideas. Um, so it's nice to get that like variety happening now in a way that I think back in the day, it was like, yep, this is happening and we're doomed. We've got 25 feet of sea rise coming at us and we're all going to drown. Um, and now the conversation is more about, okay, well, we know this is happening. So the conversation is now, what are we going to do about it? So before we let you go, and you've been a, uh, a beacon of optimism today, actually, surprisingly, <laughs> uh, on a topic that you don't really get very much of that. Um, I wanted to pick your brain about some potential strategies for remediation. Uh, we can just do a really quick uh, lightning round. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw out some ideas that have been floated out there and you, uh, on a scale from crazy to so crazy, it might work. Uh, you just tell us what you, what your, what your thoughts are. The first one is, um, I've been hearing a lot of this from, the from Stan, from a lot of, uh, the specialists or, uh, subject matter experts in Stanford university and it's managed retreat. Tell us what managed retreat is and how it might work as a remediation strategy in Miami. Managed retreat is not at all crazy. It is what most people think we're going to have to do. Managed retreat is a fancy way of saying, hey, the water is now in my front yard. Maybe I should not live in this house. I should live in a house one block back. Um, it just means moving your essential, vital things, people, power, food, um, all that stuff, away from vulnerable areas. 
Um, where it gets tricky is if you don't do it in a managed way. Um, retreat is the nightmare scenario for everyone. Like, oh God, the water's come in 10 feet. This whole block is now flooded. Everyone loses the entire value of their home, all the possessions in their home, and they have to just run for Orlando. Um, managed retreat is like, hey, we want to build a new power plant. How about we build it inland? Hey, we're going to build a new government building. How about we build it higher up? It's just generally moving everything off the coast into slightly safer areas. Um, and at a large scale, it looks like maybe the south half of Florida, not so good. Maybe we should go to Georgia, um, which is where it gets a little crazy. But in, in the short term, I mean, it's already happening on the West Coast. They don't call it managed retreat. They call it um, managed relocation because um, retreat is un-American. And that is a direct quote. Um, uh, so they're just moving essential government buildings inland. Yeah, the West Coast of Florida is fun. Um, the politics are different there, but the end result is the same. You know, sea rise is real. It's happening, and we need to move everything out of the way. Come and take, come and take it. Flags <laughs> hanging on your house as as it gets swat, devoured by red tide, shooting you know, into the hurricane. Manatees. <laughs> That'll teach it. Yeah. Um, so not we got a not at all crazy on manager retreat. Mm-hmm. Crazy to so crazy it might work on artificial forests designed to sort of suck up carbon out of the air. Oh, I confess I don't know a ton about artificial forests, but uh, that one sounds crazy. It might work because we de- we definitely, as we saw in this IPCC report, need to suck a ton of carbon out of the air. And I would assume these artificial forests are more efficient than the regular, almost free plants we have everywhere called trees they do a pretty damn good job of it um so i'm gonna yeah, go with they already do it pretty well yeah i would go with a crazy might work kind of angle on that one and how familiar are you with the concept of solar geoengineering releasing particles into the air that would act as sort of a de facto reflective surface um this is an idea that was trotted out i think about 20 years ago and laughed at and slowly people have more respectable people have started talking about this uh crazy or so crazy it might work super crazy as far as i know um so this one i have a little bit more familiarity with (laughs) i mean technically it could totally work the only problem is with that geoengineering which is just shooting a bunch of stuff into the atmosphere and saying yeah the the sun's just going to reflect off it and we're going to be a little cooler is who knows where that stuff is going to go. It's not going to stay there. We have an atmosphere that moves pretty quickly. And in some of the models for this kind of geoengineering, they realized that they accidentally, by, by doing this, they could accidentally cause huge droughts throughout the world because that giant part, like cloud of particles could end up in a different part of the world altogether and it could block rain or it could, you know, cause more heat. It could do a lot of things. Um, so, that's just the equivalent of, you know, letting a wild bear loose into a house because you think that there's a stray cat that you want to get rid of and you don't know what else that bear is going to do other than maybe destroy everything in your whole house. So just it's so super crazy. I'm going to go on that one. <laughs> and uh, my last one is just a bullet point that I, I, don't, I don't really think I fleshed out. It was just, just says Kevin Costner and Wild Waterworld. So I don't I don't remember what I was trying to get at with that. I, one. But, I've never seen um, Waterworld, but I'm going to go. Strategy. I'm going to go 10 out of 10. On oh, that you're one. missing a classic. <laughs> <laughs> missing a class for this beat how can you be should. a climate change reporter that hasn't seen water world oh, i've got some homework <laughs> <laughs> alex harris is a climate change reporter with the miami herald you can read her excellent reporting at herald.com and also on uh also check out the invading which is as we said a collaboration between the editorial boards of the herald the south florida sun sentinel is it now the broward sun sentinel did they change oh, no, their just, name no i was just giving a geographic location no they're the Short-handed. south florida sun sentinel <laughs> And the Palm Beach Post. You can find links to some of her recent reporting in the show notes. And you can follow her on Twitter at Harris Alex C. 
Alex, try to stay dry out there, okay? Will do. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I of a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn worlds of its own, needs some of your own, needs feed it up and knock speed, grunt, no strength, no let us touch a gutter with fear of height down. So, what did you love this week, Dave? Tell me all about your loves and all that shit. What do you got for love, hate, Dave? So, my love of the week is. uh pretty obvious one is the uh, the whole Taylor Swift thing um not so much that she came out and finally uh made a stance politically but uh just how much it upset um a lot of conservatives who thought that she was their special pop princess um for some strange reason they they thought that this girl with all these gay backup dancers and you know and, and like pop music that's played in clubs and stuff like that was uh was conservative it's just hilarious and they're all upset about about it we talk about the pretzels that people have to like twist themselves into to believe things yeah. to believe that taylor swift would be a like a, a closet trump supporter is bonkers it's it takes it's so much like you have to really just not care about any facts to think that i mean <laughs> <laughs> so, so my people are so weird my love was a movie that I think has been out for like two months at this point. So maybe it's old news to most people. Um, Hold the Dark, uh, which is a Netflix movie starring, starring uh, uh, Jeremy Grambrim and Florgan <laughs> Flarsnerd. I forget. I didn't write down any of the people who were involved in it. Westworld Robot. And it's directed by Jeremy Solnyonyonyon. Jarlamy. Jarlamy. Slarny LR. Um, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it tonight. Actually, uh, Gina's out of town, so I got the TV to myself, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna sit there and finally watch this thing. I've been looking really forward to it. Green Room is one of my favorite movies of uh, not last year, the year before, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to watch it. It looks really good. What'd you hate, Dave? What did I hate? Um, uh, I I I briefly, you know me, I, I don't read that much into these things but i read one article about this anti-wind farm activism sweeping europe it was on gizmodo the birds, Dave. you can't kill the birds the birds are very precious <laughs> and these wind farms are absolutely slaughtering them yeah apparently well actually it's not it's not just the birds it's and i guess trump has gotten in on this as well a little bit now oh, yeah, this is um, an so old, i guess it's, it's coming to america yeah, apparently wind farms uh, cause your brain to uh, go to mush or something like that. Like, uh, th that's a new thing. Um, of course, it's because we, we want beautiful coal, I guess, or whatever the fuck, but uh, instead. But, uh, yeah, I guess wind farms, they, 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 turn, they drive animals crazy. They, uh, they, they, they fuck with your brain. That's what uh, these people think. So, and I guess it's a huge thing in Europe now. They're like, they're like fucking like rioting against it. So, yeah, I was just like, oh, so that's there's where we a, are now as a, as, as a species. There's a, a website called, um, and I, I was so hoping that, uh, that, that this was real, but it's just a, like a, a sh like a slick marketing campaign joke. It, I thought it was real though. Um, it's called birds aren't real.com. And it, they were, they're like trying to say that birds <laughs> don't really exist. They're like a government drone program. And, uh, and that it's the government spying on you. And whenever you see a bird, you should like 
shoo it away or bash it. And um, (laughs) but as soon as you click on the link to like you, you come across some of the funny memes of it on on Twitter or whatever. And then you click on the link and it's clearly like a slick packaged uh, it's just for it's for apparel like ironic apparel yeah, yeah. um uh-huh. so it's and it sucks i was really hoping it was like horsey books <laughs> i was really hoping it was real so badly and it's not but um it's still so me i hated since you asked mm-hmm. uh <laughs> the uh the supreme court decision and the narrative that's been sort of emanating after it with kavanaugh i know we talked about kavanaugh a lot on this on this podcast i don't want to rehash it but what we're seeing in the ensuing days where <laughs> it's just really funny because citing no evidence conservatives and specifically conservative pundits are just kind of saying like whoa the the the, pro- the pump is primed now who boy you thought that conservatives were we're hyped for the midterms before I'm hearing big things, guys, big, big things. Again, citing like no evidence. And <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I guess, rooted in this thing where it's like, oh, he was treated so badly and Democrats showed how horrible they are that we they just are that, like, so bad. They're so, yeah, bad. so bad. I mean, you won't get an argument for me. Democrats suck. But like, um, uh, it's just like. It's it's gaslighting again, and I know that we've been become so used to gaslighting that it's hard for us to even pay attention to half of the shit that comes out anymore. Like there were mm. huge stories this week. The New York Times had an enormous uh, just last week, and then they released the, the special section in my Sunday New York Times that I don't have nearby. Otherwise, I would loudly ruffle through it and read some select passages. But they read they they have this <laughs> enormous. This enormous years long investigation into the Trump family, um, the Trump family finances and evidence, rock solid evidence of fraud in the nobody paid attention. Nobody. I mean, a couple people paid attention. Yeah. Nobody even remembers that that's a story at all. Like it it didn't didn't make a dent in the real news cycle. Um, It didn't make a dent in the Kavanaugh news cycle in the horse race and the back and forth. Um then there's another story that just came out from, uh, I believe, ProPublica. Uh, I apologize. I'll link to it in the show notes in case I'm giving credit to the wrong outlet. But I believe it was from ProPublica that basically um, outlined the early days following Trump's being uh, Trump's election, Election Day 2016, and his interaction with uh, President Shinzo Abe from uh, Japan and how the two of them worked to get Sheldon Adelson, the who you know, who's a neighbor of yours, um, Las Vegas casino magnate Sheldon, Sheldon Adelson, who's also a big-time GOP supporter and um, financier, to get his casino approved in, in, in Tokyo. This is an insane story. I listened to a whole podcast about it yesterday. It's the kind of thing that would undo an entire presidency in the past. And I don't know how many times we've said that, like, oh, this one controversy. In right, the past, right. would it's have always, completely, yeah. yeah. If if it was an Obama thing, I mean, people are still complaining about the couple of dollars that that Obama tossed to Solyndra because of you know his personal connections with that company and his you know, I, fuck man. At least Solyndra was trying to do something that was decent in 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 the realm of renewables and um and solar energy. This is a multi billion dollar deal that Trump shuttled through 
with the help of the president of, of Japan at the behest of a donor. It's so wildly outwardly corrupt. And somehow I have, I have apart from, again, I don't shows you how little it's made a dent that I, a savvy news consumer and genius have barely <laughs> am barely able to remember what, uh, what news outlet it came from. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we've crossed a line. Like we've said earlier in the episode, I lost a thread somewhere there. Now. I was going to talk, yeah. suck. So I talk about like, the, Oh, the Supreme court, the Supreme court narrative. My, my, my point going back to that was that, um, there's this perception that all of a sudden conservatives are galvanized and Republicans are going to show up to the poll. And the most recent generic ballot that just came out where Democrats have been leading by about seven to nine percent pretty much forever. Democrats are leading by 13 percent. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's all just manufactured bullshit. And it's what will be on TV all day on CNN today. That's all that they'll talk about is the the surging Republicans after the uh, the horrible treatment of of special wet boy. What's his name? Kevin Kavanaugh? Don't doesn't it seem like his name should be Kevin Kavanaugh? I mean, Kevin Brett Kavanaugh, is pretty perfect yeah. too. It's hard to find a better name than Brett for that guy. Did you but, see that? that uh, did you see that? It's like I, I know it's super on the nose, but it's uh, it's like like the uh, official artist, you know, the drawing of of or painting of the Supreme Court, and it's of Brett Kavanaugh with a red, you know, beer cup. You know the solo cup. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs>